Uh, let me um, pray for us. Father, thank you that you've spoken. Thank you that uh, these very words were sung by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now to engage these uh, words and to put our hope in the God of Jacob. Amen. So apparently you're working through us these psalms, which are the uh, halal psalms which means uh, praise, and they were sung before the uh, Passover meal. I'm sure we're all familiar with the idea of remembering. Uh, Remembering is thinking about something that happened in the past, but there are sometimes quite different reasons for remembering. What we have experienced in days gone by, some people remember with regret, and anger, uh, some injustice or past hostility and want to keep sustaining that anger or resentment and so on. Uh, other people can remember with sentimental motivation the good old days. But remembering to relive the past is fairly pointless because we can't go back. But there are very important and wise reasons to remember. And remembering for the purpose of continuing to trust God and move forward with hope in his ultimate triumph is particularly important. Uh, We can remember in a hopeful way that looks at God's actions in the past so as to be certain about the future. So you're working through this series on what some describe as the Egyptian halal psalms. If that's if I've been misinformed, then we're just randomly looking at Psalm 114. <laughs> that is, they are psalms that remember God's powerful actions in deliverance from Egypt, uh, particularly by the Passover where Yahweh brought judgment on Egypt and her gods. And the word halal means praise, from which we get hallelujah, praise Yahweh. This psalm in particular remembers and focuses on the power of God uh, to save people as demonstrated in the Exodus and calls Israel to remember the Exodus in order that they might more wholeheartedly rely on their God, the God of Jacob, who saved his descendants, and therefore to give appropriate praise and allegiance to him. And straight away in verses 1 and 2, it assumes familiarity with what God did for his enslaved people. And it assumes that we understand that this is a very significant event because of Yahweh's promises to Abraham. Abraham was God's gracious answer to Babel. I'm sure you remember the Tower of Babel is where humanity in their sinfulness uh, built a tower for themselves to heaven to make a name for themselves. They tried to occupy the place of ultimate rule, heaven itself. In God's judgment, 
there are now many nations so that humanity could not cooperate against God. But of those nations, God chose Abraham. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to be the patriarchs of a great nation or a city built by God. That God would make a name for them and that these people would live under his his rule in his holy place. And of course, as we know, the Pharaoh of Egypt directly opposed that plan. Firstly, by seeking to reduce Israel's numerical fruitfulness by killing their children. And by refusing to let them leave Egypt to go to the holy place of God's promise. And he presumed to rule them harshly as king when Yahweh himself was their true king. See, Pharaoh picked a fight with the true and living God and he decisively lost. And for those of you who've travelled or been a minority person in a foreign place, you'll understand something of the reference in verse 1 to people of a strange tongue. This is an image of vulnerability and weakness. In a foreign place, you can easily become helpless, as Israel were. There's a show on the ABC called Gruen. It's a comedy show that exposes the techniques of advertising and analyses how advertising affects people. It's actually a very clever show. But as part of this show each week, two advertising companies compete to advertise something you wouldn't usually try to sell. So one week they had to try to make a 30-second ad to convince international tourists not to come to Australia. And, And one of the ads started with these great panoramic Scenes of empty beaches and vast deserts and isolated mountain ranges and the punchline of this mock ad was plenty of isolated wide open spaces to bury a body. (laughs) 30 tourists every year die in Australia. (laughs) See, people do die in foreign places because they are far from familiar help and social structures. Far away from phone numbers like triple zero. Israel were helpless slaves, apparently far from effective help. They were ruled by people of a foreign language. And even in our world today we see this. Right now, oppressed minority people are dying. Look at minority groups in the world and the sheer numbers of refugees. But in the ancient world, there was no Amnesty International or any global communication, no trade sanctions to be put on Pharaoh of Egypt. At the time of the Exodus, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world and humanly speaking, no one could tell Pharaoh what to do. 
So the reference here to Israel living in the land of a foreign language emphasises the enslavement and oppression and vulnerability of their time in Egypt. Except Yahweh, the God of Jacob, who is utterly faithful to keep covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So these two first verses talk about the transfer of kingship that took place when Yahweh brought them out of Egypt, particularly verse 2. In, in Exodus chapters 25 to 40, which are boring to us because it's all this description of how to make a tabernacle in great detail, but these are the pinnacle of the book of Exodus. Because this is where man and God will live together. Israel have now been saved from their slavery, from the kingship of Pharaoh. Now their true king will live with them, will tabernacle with them. See, he's their king. Israel is the place of his dominion. And it's the holy place of his presence. And the word dominion here means the place of a king's rule. See, people talk about Jesus as saviour and as Lord, but sometimes they talk about them as though they're completely separate things. Obviously, they describe different things, but they are inseparable things. Where God dwells in his holiness is the place of his rule. He is the redeeming king. See, if Jesus isn't saviour and king, he's neither. When Jesus dies on a cross to save as the Passover lamb, he dies as the king of Israel. And in the Old Testament, the promised land was to be a new Eden, a place where God in his holiness lives with his people who have been made holy and whom he rules as king. But like Eden, the promised land was a stuff-up because of the sinful human condition to rule ourselves to prefer idols to the true and living God. See, and that's the same now, isn't it? People reject God's kingship. The mention of Judah here in verse 2 in parallel with Israel isn't saying Judah are more holy or special, but it highlights them in terms of both themes of kingship and the place of God's holy dwelling. And that's easy to see, isn't it? Because David's family ruled from Jerusalem and the holy place of the temple was in Jerusalem. See, the whole of Israel had access to this. Again, Yahweh's holy presence and his kingly dominion are inseparable things. Where God rules is in all his holiness, he rules as king. 
And I think our culture misses that a bit, don't we? And verses 3 and 4 celebrate the extent and power of his rule. His rule is such that before Yahweh, the immovable is not immovable. Described poetically as mountains jumping or skipping, as seas dividing or parting before him. See, the sea in Exodus represents an obstacle to Israel's deliverance. As you would remember in fleeing Egypt, Israel had the Red Sea before them and the Egyptian army behind them. But such is the kingship of Yahweh that he simply caused the sea to flee or literally to part. And then again, the Jordan River did the same as Israel entered the Holy Land, the holy place of God's presence and rule. Mountains quaked, verse 4, remembering Mount Sinai, where God revealed his holy presence and spoke covenant words, which would be the means of God's righteous rule. See, how do we as his people live under his rule and respect his lordship? We do what he says. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, but don't do what I say? Again, this combines the ideas of kingship and holy presence. Sinai was made holy by Yahweh's presence, the place from which his word was spoken. And verses 5 and 6 continue the ideas of these verses, but it does so by almost asking satirical questions of creation. Why, O mountains, did you run away? Why did you skip like lambs before Yahweh? O great sea, in all your vastness and volume, why did you part before his presence? This style of writing works because from a human perspective, making whole mountains move and seas part even with all our technology now, is humanly impossible. On the website despair.com, which claims to make popular motivational phrases more realistic, it has a picture of a person on a bicycle approaching or heading towards a point in the road where Lava is streaming across for a vast distance and the caption says some things cannot be overcome with more determination than a positive attitude. Some things are just way beyond human capacity. Atheists used to ask the question if God is all-powerful Can he create a rock too heavy for himself to lift? 
And of course, the response by C.S. Lewis, among others, is that adding God to an irrational sentence doesn't make an irrational statement rational. It's as irrational as saying water that's not wet. But what we do get a glimpse of here is that God can do what he pleases to do. There's nothing to stop him doing what he wants to do. And in the context of this psalm, God was pleased by his great power to release his enslaved people from the world's political military superpower ultimately by Passover lamb being sacrificed to turn away judgment and by governing creation in such a way that in actions comparable to the original creation, he separated the seas and he made the mountains shake. And surprisingly, the way we see this again in its fulfilment is that Yahweh takes on human flesh, dies a sacrificial death that that turns away judgment and triumphs over death itself. And at the time of his death, as we read earlier in the service, the way all the gospel writers record it, there was darkness over the land. The earth shook And the temple curtain was parted. God makes a way to enter the holy place of his gracious rule. As his glorious son dies as the king of Israel. So then how does creation and by implication humanity respond to this faithful expression of extreme power. Verses 7 to 8 give one aspect of an answer to that question. These verses emphasise the presence of the Lord, which is literally in Hebrew, before the face of. And Psalm 48 is helpful here also because it joins similar themes as this together. And the way Psalm 48 expresses it. It says that enemies tremble at Zion because from his holy place, Yahweh exercises his rule. And what's emphasised about his presence here is the life-giving benefits to his people. Summarised in the Exodus experience of water from the rock in the wilderness. We know that by this God was teaching his people to depend on him, to be nourished and sustained by him. So Yahweh uses his great strength and power not just in judging the wicked but in providing living water for his people. As we know from Exodus itself, one purpose of this whole event was that people might know him and see his glory. 
How do we know what God is like? Will we look at what he did in the Exodus and how he saved and sustained his people in the wilderness? And the later biblical writers pick up this theme. When Israel again failed to keep covenant with God time and time again and eventually found themselves in Babylonian exile, the prophet Isaiah told the people to look for a new exodus, a second exodus, a new return to the land, particularly Isaiah does this in chapters 40 to 55. But he did so in such a way as to say that the, that physically returning to the land is not going to be enough. See, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the exile didn't change anything. It didn't change Israel. The same old Israel returned. All that this uh, will achieve, this return from exile, is to, is to build another inadequate Jerusalem, another failed Jerusalem. Israel or Jacob in Isaiah were described by Isaiah as a failed servant of Yahweh, a blind and deaf servant. Steve may show next week that Psalm 114 and 115 were combined into one psalm in the Greek version of the New Testament because they were both sung at the Passover meal in particular sequence. And significantly, Psalm 115 goes on to say that people who worship idols become like their idols. See, they have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear, hands but cannot act, and feet but don't go anywhere. And Israel had become so. But what Isaiah proposed is that an ideal servant surprisingly a suffering servant will come to do the will of God and he must be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. See, to bring about this new exodus from Babylonian enslavement, it's going to take more than physically returning Israel to the promised land. It's going to take a transformative new exodus. A transformative release from enslavement. And so just before Isaiah introduces us to this servant in chapter 42, he says this regarding the future glorious new exodus in chapter 41, verse 17 and 18. Isaiah says this, When the poor and needy seek water, 
and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. And of course we know that now, don't we, that our real enemies in this world are not political powers or lack of education and resources. Our real enemies are sin and death. And from these things we need an exodus. So if we're to stand in the holy and mighty presence of Yahweh, we need someone to act for us. And the gospel writers, each in their own particular way, demonstrate the necessary mighty act of deliverance to be brought back into Yahweh's holy presence occurred fundamentally in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his death on a cross and his powerful resurrection. So, for example, in Matthew, after describing the crucifixion and the darkness over the land, the shaking of the earth and the tearing of the temple curtain, Matthew puts it this way. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that took place, they were filled with awe, literally fear, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It's worth contemplating very deeply as you think about coming up to Easter that the Lord Jesus sang this psalm about the mighty exodus power of Yahweh. He then ate Passover with his disciples and then dies on a cross as the ultimate Passover lamb that takes away sin and judgment, that redeems enslaved people and gives them living water. See, we don't go to Jerusalem to meet with Yahweh. We approach through Jesus Christ the true Passover lamb who provides salvation from slavery to sin and death, who brings true living water for the thirst of his people. So the questions asked of creation in this psalm concerning Yahweh's powerful exodus deliverance are scaled up in the New Testament, aren't they? Paul asked the question, O death, where is your sting? Why are you running away before the holy presence of Yahweh, death? Where is your power before the triumph of Yahweh as redeeming king? 
before whom even death must yield. So let me um, pray for us as we think about these things. Father, we thank you for this psalm that your glorious son himself sang before eating Passover and then himself being the ultimate Passover lamb. We thank you now that even death itself must yield uh, before your holy kingship. Uh, Please help us to grasp deeply uh, your actions through Jesus, to consider our own enslavement and helplessness, and to continue to look to your Son uh, for true water, for triumph over sin and death. Uh, Please continue your work in us as your people. Uh, to invest in your goodness and mercy. Uh, We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.